You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good. Everyone's like, we had to shovel our way out of the house, so we're mad. Uh, So when I was in college, uh, during my last year of college, I took a job as a part-time bank teller, which some of you find really hard to believe. Brad showing up to work every single day in a tie, that felt more like a noose, if I'm honest with myself. And, uh, and so here I am working as this bank teller and helping customers and obviously handling deposits and, and things like that. And there was one customer that we had that was one of our most regular customers. Her name was Patty. That's not her real name. I'm protecting her identity here. Uh, but she was a local manager at a Chili's restaurant. And so her job was every single day at the end of the day to bring in the the restaurant's cash deposit, and we'd count it and obviously deposit it. And so one day, I'll never forget this day, because I'll be honest, it scarred me for life. Uh, She came in with a big cash deposit. And I was working in the drive-thru, right? So if you know anything about banks, like drive-thru's over here, and I turn, and she's in the lobby, and so I come, and I help her. And I made a massive mistake in that moment. See, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to open that deposit and count the cash right in front of the customer. But what Brad did in a rush at the end of the day was I just took the closed deposit back to my station and I began counting it over here. And as I was counting, I noticed that what she had put in the bag did not quite match what she had written on the deposit slip. And it wasn't just off by a couple bucks, it was off by $1,000. And uh, so I turned back around to her and I say, hey, Patty, and I know her well, so I'm not like worried or anything. I'm like, hey, Patty, like there's a... There's a discrepancy in your deposit here. It's off by about $1,000, and immediately her tone changed, right? Understandably, because she didn't want to be accused of doing her job wrong, and so immediately she starts accusing me of pocketing it, stealing the $1,000. And this went on. Like, it did not get resolved in this moment. We had to take the manager in. I had to take the $1,000 hit on my drawer that day because I was the one that didn't count it in front of her. They had to go and look at security footage. They opened this whole investigation on me. And uh, it went on for about a week. And so every single day, going into work, just feeling the weight of this investigation over me. Where is this $1,000? I'm being accused of stealing it. By the way, I didn't steal it. I can say that honestly. But I'm being accused of stealing it. And so I'm like living with this tension every single day. One day, they even brought in, like the bank had an employee that was kind of like the enforcer. So if any employees were ever accused of foul play or suspected of it, they would bring the enforcer in who was like the good cop, bad cop, but way more bad cop than good cop. She was a little lady named Cindy. And uh, you did not want to see Cindy in your branch. So here she comes marching in, and she's like, Brad, we got to go to the back room and have a conversation. And I didn't even know this room existed in our branch. This was like the Vegas like pit bosses where you take, you're taking if you're counting cards and stuff. I mean, it was a, a dark room with a single light over it. Cindy's got her brass knuckles that she's putting on. She's going to get some answers out of me, right? And so she starts asking me, where, where's the money? 
why'd you take the money? I, I know you're a broke college student and $1,000 will be nice right now. Where's the money? And so I'm being accused over and over again of taking this money. And I'm like, I didn't take it. So eventually she lets me go back and this weight just hung over me for days and days and days until one Friday, Cindy was back on the branch. Both her and my manager call me into the office and sit me down and my heart is pounding in this moment. And you, know, you want to know what they said to me? They said, Patty went back to the restaurant that day and found the $1,000 sitting in the safe, but chose not to tell anybody because she doesn't like you very much. So for a week, I'm sitting here with this tension living over my head. They were threatening to call law enforcement on me, like all of this stuff. So they're like, you can go back to your teller window. Make sure you count money in front of customers from now on. I'm like, noted, I will. I'll count it <laughs> six times in front of customers from now on. And so that day, I'm helping customer after customer until the very end of the day, I'll give you one guess who the last customer to step up to my window was. Patty. Oh, the things I wanted to say in that moment. Have you ever been in a situation like that? whether it's a small bank deposit offense or a life-shattering, earth-altering offense, where you just have some words that you want to exchange. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us have that name that comes to mind where it's just a little bit heavier and harder than the rest of the people in our lives. Hard to stomach, hard to think about. Maybe it's a person for you. Maybe it's a memory, a moment, that place that just churns in your gut and weighs your chest down when you think about it. That conversation you keep rehearsing in your mind to just prove your point or that Facebook post you keep like writing and then deleting and then writing again and then deleting. We've all been wronged and we, we've all wronged others. And I just want to invite us in this moment to get honest with ourselves. What do you really want to say in those moments? When the offense comes to the surface, or worse yet, you encounter your offender face to face. Whether your offense grips your thought life or you encounter them face to face, what do you really want to say? What do you really want to do? Cindy has a dark room and some brass knuckles if you need to borrow them. What about when the tables are turned, though? And you're the offender. And you know there's somebody who has some words they want to exchange with you. I think all of us know what it feels like to be in both places in our lives. And the thing I want to invite us to wrestle with today is what if this is the place where God can do some of his best and most redeeming work in our hearts and our lives? What if it's in this impossibly hard, difficult, challenging, feeling insurmountable place that God could do some of his best transforming work? The problem is most of us are not willing to let him actually do that because it's hard and it feels heavy and impossible. And if you've been tracking with us in this series, we've been looking at a guy named Joseph. And where we pick up in his story today, he has been... In 13 years of being detained and detoured, he's been in slavery and shackles, in prison and in pits. He's been wrongly accused and completely forgotten. I mean, Joseph has a long list of patties in his life. And today, in the story that we're going to look at, 
Joseph comes face to face with his offenders, the brothers who sold him into slavery, who ruined his life. What is he going to say in this moment? And so as we jump into the story today, I just want to lay some groundwork even before we jump into the scriptures here. Where we left off with Joseph last week, he's in prison. And he interprets a cupbearer's dream, and this cupbearer is placed again back in Pharaoh's palace. He's serving Pharaoh again. He's, he's vindicated. And what was Joseph's one request of the cupbearer after he was vindicated? To just remember him. To not forget him. And the cupbearer forgets Joseph for two years. Add another person to Joseph's list of patties, right? For two years, the cupbearer forgets Joseph, and Joseph is just sitting, waiting in prison until one day Pharaoh finds himself in need of dream interpretation. Pharaoh has a weird dream. Nobody can explain it to him. And the cupbearer, this dummy, has a light bulb go off in his head all of a sudden. Like, hey, I know a guy. So he goes up to Pharaoh, and he's like, remember that time two years ago when I tried to kill you and we, you know... You put me in prison? Yeah, we don't talk about that much anymore. I met a Hebrew prisoner there, and he actually knows how to interpret dreams. And so Joseph is brought before Pharaoh. And I want you watch you watch the conversation between the two of them. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 41, verses 15 and 16 here. Genesis chapter 41, verses 15 and 16. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And I love Joseph's response here. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So then Joseph proceeds to explain to Pharaoh that what his dreams mean is that there are going to be seven years of abundance, seven years of agricultural and economic abundance, livestock's going to be healthy, like all of these things, it's going to be a great seven years, but then after that, there's going to be seven years of hardship, famine, scarcity. It's like if somebody came to you in 2013 and said, you're going to have seven great years ahead of you, and then 2020 is going to hit, and it's going to be rough for a few years. It's kind of like that. And so what Joseph says to Pharaoh is, you best prepare during those seven years of like really abundant good stuff happening because the seven years after that are going to be rough, so prepare now. And Pharaoh's like, dang, this guy's smart. Want to be my prime minister? And I love what Pharaoh, this pagan king, observes in Joseph. And I believe that this line, this verse right here, is the key to understanding how Joseph will soon face his offenders the way that he actually does. This is what Pharaoh observes in Joseph in verse 38. It says this, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Some translations say that Pharaoh observed the full Spirit of God in Joseph, like this man filled with the Spirit of God. Don't tell me the Holy Spirit's not in the Old Testament. Joseph is described as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. See, this thing that God did in the secret place in Joseph's life, in the prisons, in the pits, in the slavery, in the shackles, this secret thing, this filling of the Spirit of God that happened is about to go public for the sake of the nations. It's about to go viral for everyone to witness, for everyone to see. 
But by this point in his life, Joseph just has a long list of offenses that have been committed against him. I mean, I think about his own father. His own father played favorites that completely divided their family. He was a pretty awful dad. He just divided their family. And then you have the brothers who tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery, threw him in a pit, all of these things. And then you have Potiphar's wife who falsely accused him of assaulting her. And then you have Potiphar himself who threw him into prison. And then the cupbearer who forgot him. And Joseph has so many people who have offended him and wronged him in his life that if I was Joseph in this moment, I don't know that the Spirit of God would be living in me. I think I'd have much more have a spirit of revenge living in me, if I'm honest, if we're honest with ourselves. And this is what I've observed from Joseph's story. That that being wronged has a unique way of revealing what spirit is actually living in me. It's in the moments of offense. It's in the moments when things don't go my way. It's in the moments of being wronged that actually have the power to reveal what spirit is living in me. Do I have the spirit of God living in me? or a spirit of vengeance and revenge and have the last word and prove my point and have to be right, what do you really want to say when that offense comes to the surface? When that wrongdoing dominates your thought life, when you face your offender face to face, what do you really want to say? How do you really want to respond? Some of us are trapped in cycles of revenge and vengeance with another person because we'd rather be right than be whole. And Joseph shows us what it looks like when a a different spirit is living and breathing and growing inside of us, the spirit of God, and this spirit has some fruit. But I'll be honest, I know this is a message that I'm going to need to go listen to a few more times for myself. I'm preaching to the pastor before I'm preaching to any single person sitting in this room. Because there are times and moments of offense where my natural reaction is want, wanting to be defensive or grow calluses or prove my point or have the last word. You've probably been in those situations too. Have you ever found yourself laying in bed and just rehearsing the conversation that you would have with the person just to get your point across? That's a spirit of revenge. And vengeance that lives in us. How many of us have ever heard the statement, time heals all wounds? How many of us have ever heard that before? Most of us, probably. I don't think that's true at all. I think that is a load of crap, if I'm honest. Time doesn't heal all wounds. Time doesn't heal anything. What it does is it reveals. Time reveals what is living and able to grow inside of us. Let me illustrate what I mean here. So I love a good aged cheese. Any other charcuterie fans in here? That was like a left one. Any sh- it's adult Lunchables, okay? Like, we love charcuterie in our house. And so I love a good aged cheese. There are some cheeses that, that when they're able to age, man, like a good Parmesan, you can just taste the subtleties and the flavors and the robustness or a, a cheddar and the sharpness. There is something beautiful that happens when a cheese is able to age well, this one says age for over 10 months, so it's kind of a cheap aged cheese, but still really, really good. It's the best LePinks had to offer indoor, okay? So, so here you have this, this cheese that's aged, and it tastes good. There's a nuttiness, there's flavors, there's robustness in it. 
This is what it's like when we allow and invite the Spirit of God to live and grow and age inside of us. Beautiful stuff starts coming out of us. We walk through different seasons of hardship and difficulty, seasons of offense and wrongdoing against us, and there is a specific type of fruit that comes out of our lives if the Spirit of God is what is living in us and growing and flourishing in us like a fine-aged cheese. What is that fruit like? Well, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. This, this is the fruit that comes out of our lives when we are like a fine-aged cheese with the Holy Spirit living in us and being able to work in us and form us and mold us into Christ's image. This is what it's like. This is what we see in Joseph. But the other spirit that lives in us does not age like a fine cheese. It ages way more like this. It ages like milk. Whoo! It curdles, and it sours, and it gets chunky and rancid. And I just see people squirming in their seats. Right? Anybody want a drink of this? It's actually not that old, but it is from my fridge this morning. And it's your coffee cake? Okay. There's not much good that comes out of aged milk, except for coffee cake, I guess. Right? It gets rancid and gnarly and disgusting. And this is exactly what it looks like when we allow the other spirit to take root in our lives, to grow and to develop and to mature. See, the fruit of this spirit is things like hostility towards other people, idolatry, rage, anger, uh, jealousy, reactivity, devouring each other, revenge, See, if, if you don't believe me, go read Galatians 5. Because the writer Paul in the New Testament talks about how these two spirits are warring inside of you. And the, the list that I gave you of the stuff that comes out of us, depending on which one is, is thriving in us, is straight from Paul's words in Galatians 5. He literally says, when this spirit has dominance over your life, you will devour other people. You will devour each other. It's a spirit of vengeance and revenge, and have the last word. So church, what is the spirit that is living and growing and taking root in your life? Is it the fruit of fine aged cheese, the fruit of the spirit, or is it the fruit of revenge and vengeance and gross, nasty, rancid milk? Being wronged has a unique way of revealing what spirit is growing and thriving inside of me. So going back to Joseph's story, Pharaoh, he witnesses the spirit of God, not a spirit of vengeance, not a spirit of like bitterness, but the spirit of God he witnesses in Joseph. And in a moment, in an instant, he elevates him from prisoner to prime minister. Joseph is invited to oversee all of this, to oversee the grain production and the distribution to the nations. And and Egypt is thriving Nine years later, nine years into this, Egypt is thriving when they're thrust into famine. And yet Joseph's family are not thriving in Canaan. They're starving. And so their dad sends his brothers to Egypt, and they have an encounter with Joseph. And that's where we're going to pick up in the story here. 
Genesis chapter 42, verses 5 and 6 say this, Thus the sons of Israel, or Joseph's brothers, came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph comes face to face with the men who wronged him. And if you remember his dream from week one, this dream has now literally come true in his life. Right? The brothers that he once said would bow down to him are bowing down to him. They're coming to him. They're not in the place of control and power anymore. Joseph is. The tables have turned in this situation. And here they are before him 22 years after they sold him into slavery. He's 39 years old at this point. He was sold as a teenager. 22 years of his life stolen from him. And he comes face to face with the men who wronged him, and they don't recognize that it's their brother. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. What will this Holy Spirit-filled man do in this moment? How will he respond to his offenders, to the wrongdoers against him? What will he do? He pranks them. That's what he does. You really think I was going to say he like instantly forgives? No, he pranks them. He, 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 he kind of messes with them a little bit. Like Nothing says being filled with the Spirit of God means you can't have a little fun with people sometimes. But he, he messes with them. And, and this is what happens in verses 7 and 8 here. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And so what he does is he accuses them of being spies. And this whole time, he's using an interpreter, okay? Like, he's pretending like he doesn't know their native language. So he's speaking to them through an interpreter. He accuses them of being spies. They say, no, 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 we're not spies. Our story is legitimate. We came for food. We want to buy food. We're honest men, is what they say. They're anything but honest men. Okay, and so they come to him and, and he messes with them and he says, okay, if your story is really true, go back and grab your youngest brother. I'm going to hold one of you hostage here while you go prove what you're saying is true. And so as they're kind of having this kerfuffle and they're talking and stuff, Joseph can hear his brothers within earshot kind of planning with each other and talking, but they don't know who he is and they don't know he can understand them. And what they say is they say, my gosh, this ordeal must be a result of what we did to our brother Joseph all those years ago. Right? They're, they're convicted or they're wrestling with this and like, this has to be because of what we did to Joseph. And Joseph can hear and understand every single word they're saying. And if I'm Joseph in this moment, I'd be having so much fun listening to the guys just squirm as I watch them. But that's not what Joseph does. And in this moment, I see, Joseph, I see Jesus and Joseph perhaps more than any other place in this whole story. Watch what Joseph does when he watches his brothers have this conversation. It says this in verse 24. Then he turned away from them and he wept. He wept. There is something so holy about a spirit-filled guy encountering those who have offended him the worst, and his response is to weep. What was he weeping over? Was he weeping over the sin in his family? 
Was he weeping over his father, his, his broken brothers? Was he weeping for himself and all of the years that had been stolen from him by others? Was he weeping for his people and the starvation they were navigating? Was he weeping for Egypt? Was he weeping for Potiphar and the brokenness in Potiphar's house? Was he weeping for his fellow prisoners when he was in prison? Joseph encounters his offenders face to face and he weeps. And the reason I see Jesus in this moment is because this is the exact response that Jesus has. When he looks at Jerusalem and he sees the sin and he sees the brokenness and he sees the devastation, Jesus, just like Joseph, chooses a response of weeping. Church, it is godly to grieve over offenses, over the way sin has infected a family, an individual, a nation. Jesus grieves the ravaging effects of sin. Joseph grieves the ravaging effects of sin. But here's the key to this story, and this is something we've said repeatedly. You and I are not supposed to see ourselves as Joseph in this story. I've said this every single week of this series. We are first and foremost not Joseph in this story. Joseph represents Jesus in this story. He points us to the true and better Joseph, who is Jesus. So who are we supposed to see ourselves as in this story? We're the brothers. Before we're any other character, we are the brothers. I am to Jesus what Joseph's brothers were to him. You and I are patties in God's story. And when we become people of revenge... What we are doing and saying is that we are forgetting our role as offenders against God's righteousness and his story of redemption. That, that by my own merits and by my own needs, that when I come to the throne of Jesus, I am always, first and foremost, the position of brother, begging for mercy, begging for forgiveness, begging to not have him take revenge on me. That is the starting place. See, when we, when we put ourselves in Joseph's shoes and we are the ones that are able to enact revenge on other people, that kind of spirit does not grow good fruit in our lives because what we're doing in those moments is we're saying, God, you let me sit in the driver's seat of this situation. You let me take matters into my own hands. God, you let me have the last word. God, you let me prove my point. We put ourselves in the driver's seat. Revenge is saying, I can right the situation better than you can, God. I use revenge to expedite God's plan for my life. And yet, when I look at the cross of Jesus, when I look at the person of Jesus, what I can see is that God had every right to enact revenge on me, and the cross shows me that he chose not to. He chose not to. See, we live in a world that thinks revenge is a strength or a virtue. But it always has to one-up. Revenge acts out of injured pride and untamed fear. It always has to control. It's never satisfied. Joseph's story shows us that instead of revenge, Joseph shows kindness to his brothers. And I love how this part of the story ends. What Joseph does is he sends his brothers on their way home with the food they need, 
But not only does he give them the food they need, but he returns the money they paid him for the food in their sacks and sends them home with it. So this is mercy, this is kindness being extended to his brothers, to the offenders that have wronged him. Not only does he feed them, but he doesn't even make them pay for the food. And when they bring it back later, one of his attendants says, it's forgiven, don't worry about it. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus. That the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Joseph shows us Jesus. Now some of us right now in this moment, we need to take a deep breath because there is a name and a face coming to our mind. There is a situation that is weighing heavy on us. We need to take a deep breath, unclench our fists, and invite God to move into that situation. Invite God to move into the calloused places of our hearts. I want the fruit of the Spirit in my life more than anything else. I want my life to be marked not by a callousness, not by a hard-heartedness, but a heart that has been softened to the things of the Spirit, just like Joseph's is. In a cultural and political climate that considers this fruit weakness, I want that fruit. I want my life to be defined by that fruit. To have the power and the Spirit of Christ living in me means that the past has lost its power. It means that I trust the future to the one who holds the future. It means that I don't have to have the last word in every situation because my life belongs to the one who already has the final word in every situation. See, the fruit of the Spirit taking root in our lives is to be filled with the Spirit, meaning I know I have an advocate, a defender, one who goes before me, one who is fighting battles on my behalf that I don't even know he's fighting. To be filled with the Spirit means that I trust where my life is headed because I know the one who holds my life, who will one day judge the wicked and the righteous against his own son. One who promises to work my story out for my good. See, we don't have to be people of revenge or the last word or prove my point or one up when our lives belong to Christ. So how do we get this fruit in our lives? Like, how do we make a a sermon like this practical? Well, there are two processes that really have to be ongoing in our lives to be able to have this fruit, this good fruit grow and thrive in our lives. The first process, the first ongoing process is this. I have to see myself, first and foremost, as the offender in God's story. I have to see myself as the offender in God's story. Some of you are in a cycle of revenge right now. And you're walking through this life with a white knuckle grip that you have given your life to Christ, but there is so much angst and rage that is living inside of you towards a person and towards a situation. And to see myself as the offender in God's story means that my heart becomes softened. It becomes humbled. It means that I see myself in need of forgiveness before I can ever extend that to somebody else. To to see myself as the offender in God's story, for some of us, that means that we go and we apologize for the wrongs that we've done. 
for others of us, seeing myself as the offender in God's story, first and foremost, is the birthplace of good fruit being planted in my life because it humbles me and it is a perspective I have to forever, forever keep before me. You didn't earn your salvation. You didn't do anything to get in God's good graces. Just like the brothers, you come before the King of kings and the Lord of lords utterly helpless. You are the offender in God's story, and so am I. That's the bad news. The good news is number two, that when I do this, when I see myself as the offender in God's story, I am given an invitation to release control of my life to one who is even kinder and more merciful and more generous than Joseph. That when I see myself as a brother, as the offender in God's story, and then I choose to release myself, release my life, release control to the one who has control, his promise is that good fruit will grow in that place. John 15, he who abides in me and I in him will bear much good fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's where the fruit is birthed and grows in our lives. Until then, I am putting myself in the place of God. Until I release, release a person, release my life, release a story to God and his ability to correct and bring justice to it, I am placing myself in the seat of God and good fruit will never grow in my life. When I practice release, I am releasing my situation to the only one who can bring justice to that situation. So here's, here's how I want to close today. And notice I didn't... I didn't touch a lot on the F word today. <laughs> forgiveness. Get your minds out of the gutter, okay? Uh, forgiveness. We're going to dig deeper into that. There's a second interaction that Joseph has with his brothers. We're going to really dig into the how and the nitty-gritty of forgiveness next week. But I believe this process needs to start its place in our lives before we're ever empowered to forgive somebody. That we repent and we release. We repent and we release. We repent of the areas of our lives where we have not seen ourselves as the offenders in God's story. We repent of when we placed ourselves in Joseph's place, right? Where, where we puff ourselves up, where we think we earned it. And then we release God to move. We release our lives to him. We invite him to correct and to justify and all of those things. So I want to invite the band up as, as we close today. And I just want to talk about where I'm at right now. Like, this is a family where we can be honest with each other, and that's what I love about this church. So December and January have been kind of hard spiritual months for me personally. I feel like there's been weeks of just spiritual drought. And even just recently in, in kind of the secret place, times of worship and prayer and reading scripture, God has really revealed to me, like, my heart is really easily prone to growing calluses on it. Because calluses on our heart or hardness of heart is a defense mechanism. It can protect us from getting hurt. But it also makes us apathetic, indifferent. And God really convicted me on this even just recently. And in his conviction, it wasn't like a, you know, smackdown conviction, but he, he's slowly and gently and even with the fruit of the Spirit shown me hey, you, you can't have a hard heart. You can't have a hard heart towards your kids in this situation or your spouse in your marriage 
or people in the church. Like my desire is to soften your heart. I've been drawn over and over again in my life to the words of Ezekiel 36. This is God's promise to the people of Israel, but it's also his promise to us. He says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, the heart of calluses, the heart of indifference, the heart of needing revenge, or the final word, I will remove that heart from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. See, it's been in the secret place. It's been in the laying in bed of rehearsing conversations and what it looks like to prove my point or have the final word where God has said, you have a heart that is prone to callous. I want to put my spirit in that place. It's been sitting in the shower wrestling through things. I know that's an image nobody wants, but let's be honest. A lot of us do our best thinking in the shower, okay? Where God has said, I I want to replace the calluses that exist in your heart and I want to give you my spirit that has all kinds of different fruit. It's driving alone in the car and just times of worship and prayer and just saying, God, I repent of the areas where I am indifferent. I repent of the areas where calluses have grown or resentment has festered against people or a situation. And I release control of my life. You see, the question for every single one of us today is where do I need to repent and where do I need to release? Maybe a better way even to ask that is where do I need to repent and who do I need to release? Because when the Spirit of God is living in us, good fruit grows. And this is the ongoing process that we go through for this fruit to take root and grow. Let me offer a prayer for each of us and then we're going to respond in worship today. Jesus, we thank you that you are gracious. That you are kind and merciful. That you are not weak, but in your mercy you are strong. Jesus, even today we repent of the areas of our lives where we've taken things into our own hands to try to prove a point or get even, have the last word, where we've chosen being right over being whole. Father, even collectively as a congregation today, we just repent of that. I want to invite you even in this moment just to name specific situation right now before God, just silently in your heart. It's a marriage situation. It's a work situation. It's a relationship with your kids or an ex. Just name that situation in your heart right now. And God, I I release that to you. I move from having clenched fists to open hands because I want your good fruit to grow in my life. Father, I want to be a person that is marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I want to be like Joseph, but more importantly, I want to be like Jesus. God, give me a new heart. Give me a new spirit. Allow me to walk with you.
in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said,